Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to learn about the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating on the American shorelines. And we are officially smack dab in the middle of summer, and I hope that you all are enjoying it to the fullest. I know I certainly am. So I thought it would be appropriate to take some time today to chat about a place that is a beloved vacation and recreation destination and visited by more than 2.2 million people every year. But before we dive in, let's take a quick break to take care of some housekeeping. Well, I think that it is high time that we told folks to get their butts to the ASBPA National Conference oh, yeah. in Myrtle Beach, North Carolina. South Carolina. South Carolina, excuse me. North Myrtle Beach, yes. South Carolina. That's exactly It's very right. close to North Carolina. It is. It's just, just south the of there. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, uh, this is the Where Coasts and Rivers Meet Conference, ASBPA's 2019 National Conference. Um, we are thrilled we will be there uh, podcasting. We are the official exclusive podcast partner of ASBPA for this conference. And uh, listen, uh, this is this is where every coastal... Uh, professional coastal engineers. Uh, this is where you want to go and uh, learn what is going on. They have an incredible panel, uh, hundreds, I think it's fair to say, of presentations. Yeah. Um, ex- incredible keynote speaker. I don't have the uh, full program in front of me at the moment, but uh, it's early still. The, the conference is October 22nd to October 25th. And it'll be in Myrtle Beach, and, and we're going to be there, and we're going to be podcasting from the conference, Tyler. I think uh, it'll start with our kickoff interview with Derek Brockbank, the executive director of ASBPA. We'll be putting him on the show probably here later in August to talk about the conference, the highlights, what you're going to see when you get there. And then during the event, we'll be podcasting. Uh, we're going to interview the keynote speaker. We're going to interview some of the panelists who stand out to us. Uh, we always do the wrap-up with all the attendees. So there'll be several shows coming from Myrtle Beach at the ASBPA. It's our Conference. second year, baby. Yeah, I look forward to it. Today I am joined by Kate Manley, and Kate is going to serve as our resident expert on Fire Island, where she serves in her current role as Community Volunteer Ambassador for the National Park Service at Fire Island National Seashore. Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And before we get into your work at Fire Island, I would love for listeners to get to know you a bit better because you've lived and studied and worked in some really interesting places, which in preparing for this show, I realized that you have something in common with one of the founders of the American Shoreline Podcast Network, Tyler, in that <laughs> you are both from Ventura, California. And yep. I know that he cites this um, in, he really cites his experiences there as central to his love for the ocean and coast and conservation. So do you think that it had a similar effect on you? And can you talk a bit ba- about what your experience was like growing up there? Oh, absolutely. Um, So growing up in Ventura, California, it's definitely like a sleepy beach town, um, close enough to Los Angeles where it feels like it's kind of a bigger city. But um, I was super in tune with the ocean at a very young age. I was there pretty much every weekend with my family. And 
One of the best aspects of living in Ventura County is that the Channel Islands are right offshore of Ventura and Oxnard. Um, so the Channel Islands National Park is a beautiful place that also has conservation work being done there. And I was started visiting Channel Islands um, when I was a little kid with my family as well. Whether we were hiking on the islands or just taking whale watching tours throughout the islands, I was very well in tune with the ocean. Yeah, and I think I think between you and and Tyler, you guys are really selling me on going out to visit. I, I definitely need to put that on my list of places to go because it sounds so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really nice spot. And so we also are going to go from having one shared experience of a sense of place with Tyler um, to your college years where you attended University of Hawaii, mm-hmm. and that is where our paths overlap a little bit because. I was actually born in Honolulu, and uh, my family was stationed there twice while my dad was in the Coast Guard. Oh, Granted, awesome. yeah, uh, I was a you know I was a child when I lived there, and I left when I was seven. So I imagine our experiences with Hawaii were quite different, but also might have a similar effect in the formative and impactful experiences that we gained from living in such a special place. Um, What did you study while you were out there? And can you talk a bit about the program that you were in? Absolutely. Um, So I studied marine biology when I was at the University of Hawaii. Um, I was there for about four and a half years. And when I was doing my undergrad, I was actually working in a laboratory, um, pretty much volunteering, actually. It wasn't paid. But I was doing my undergraduate research thesis through a laboratory at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology which is located on the windward side of Oahu. So it's on the eastern side. Um, It's a teeny little island off of the island that you have to take a boat to. So I would take a boat every day to get to my lab. And while I was there, I was working under the laboratory of Dr. Mary Hagedorn. Um, She is a UH Manoa affiliate faculty professor, but she is also um, a researcher with the Smithsonian. And while I was working in her lab, we were focusing on coral conservation biology. And she was mainly focusing on the use of um, cryobiology to freeze coral gametes in order to later preserve them for coral conservation practices. So while I was working under her, I was helping assist with a lot of her projects, as well as doing my undergraduate research thesis, which was focusing on coral fragments. That sounds so amazing. And like, honestly, the most ideal situation maybe possible in terms of studying yeah. marine biology. Yeah, it definitely sold me on um, going to Hawaii. As soon as I got my acceptance letter, I think I automatically knew that I was going to go there. <laughs> and are there any experiences <laughs> from your time in undergrad that you know really impacted you or, or stick out as like a favorite or most notable memory? Yeah, definitely. Um, probably working for the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology because While I was in that lab, we had a lot of chimes to go out in the field and harvest coral fragments. Um, And that is like one of my favorite places I've ever dove in my entire life. I think it's beautiful there. There's so much um, reef that has been untouched, surprisingly. And um, I just like have so many vivid memories of myself diving there. Like I even dream about it still. (laughs) It's also (laughs) like a great place just to have in your like mental safe there to even daydream. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So now I want to jump from Hawaii to another incredible place, Alaska. Will you tell me more about your exchange semester there and what you were up to? 
Absolutely. So um, I was a part of the National Student Exchange, where basically it works within all 50 states. Um, I decided to go my winter semester, like my fall semester of junior year, and I went to the University of Alaska Southeast. Um, And I chose that school because University of Alaska Southeast is actually really big in the world of marine biology. It is sitting right in between the Gulf of Alaska as well as um, Elk Bay. So it's right in between two bodies of water. Um, My time there was amazing. There was a lot of other exchange students with me that year as well. So I had a wide variety of friends from all over the world. Um, And while I was there, I was able to connect really well with the professors because it was such a small school that my class sizes were about like 12 people maximum. And with that, I was able to really connect with my professors, get help from them. And I was also able to volunteer in their labs to help out with some of their ongoing research. And while I was there, I was helping Dr. Heidi Pearson do um, photo ID with whale flukes and dusky dolphin fins. And that was um, a collaborative effort between the University of Alaska and Texas A&M. And um, that was actually one of the first papers that I ever got my name on. So I was very excited about that. And all I did was sit in a lab all day and like look at photos of dolphin fins. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, still, it's an, such an incredible experience. And, and even if you're in a lab all day, I think that there's something to be said about that attention to detail, you know, and being able to oh, absolutely. compare yeah. and contrast all of those photos and the different kinds of wildlife. Yeah, you definitely have to have a balance between the lab and the field. For sure. Um, and it's really apparent to me that that spending time outdoors is central to your identity. Um, and why do, I'm just wondering, like, why do you think that is? And and what do those experiences outside and connecting with nature mean to you? It means like pretty much everything to me. I don't know who I would be if I didn't have a career where I could be outside and enjoy my job. Um And to be honest, like a desk job, frankly, like terrifies me, but, (laughs) um, being outside is really important. It's just like a breath of fresh air. And I definitely think that nature influences you to be a healthier, more creative person. Um, it keeps me sane and my time spent outdoors, you know, it definitely, it keeps me balanced in life. Yeah, I hear that. And I, you know, actually, so when I applied for the job that I have now, which is, with the American Literal Society, um, running this group called the Healthy Oceans Coalition. And not to get too far into it, but we connect a lot of grassroots advocates with um, federal ocean and coastal policy work. And before that, though, most of my experience had been with jobs that were out in the field um, to the point where it was a concern of the folks that ended up eventually hiring me, um, how I would deal with my position now, which is a lot more of in office work. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that it took, it was definitely a transition period, but it, it took just, um, you know, making sure that there's variety in my day to day still, even if I'm not out in the field, I'm never doing something similar every single day. And I find that that helps. Um, even though mentally I'm pretty much outside all the time. (laughs) Yeah, Um, definitely. Yeah. It's, yeah. And just to give a little bit more background on me too, is that after moving around a bunch in my younger years with my dad's career, um, my family put down our roots just north of Portland, Maine. And I feel like over time, just because I've fallen so deeply in love with the state, that I've sort of become an unofficial ambassador for it. 
and, you know, I'm pretty much always talking about it and uh, sending people recommendations about where to go and what to see and planning for future adventures. And I'm wondering if you have anywhere like that. And, um, you know, is there some place that rises above the rest in terms of your connection to it? And what makes that place so special? Yeah, well, I think that everywhere I've lived, you know, kind of has that influence on me. I always feel like a big advocate for it, whether or not, you know, I had a a really enjoyable time there uh, because I had like the experience to go off of. But by far, I would have to say Hawaii is the place that I could call myself an ambassador for. I was there for quite a long time. And I really did get to see a lot of the island, not the whole entire thing, because there's so much to see when you go visit. But every time I have a friend who tells me they're vacationing there or they know somebody who's going to vacation there, I always give them as many recommendations I can, whether it's about food, beaches, hikes. Um, I'm always really happy to like help somebody form their itinerary. Yeah. And then have them come back and be like, those recommendations were so great. And it's like you're helping them experience the beauty of the island from a perspective of a local, you know? Exactly. And it's... Yeah. It's so easy for you to go to the island and um, just go to the generic spots that people see on TV or like you hear from your friends. But to see, to get the, um, like an outward, um, I can't speak right now, to get somebody else's perspective about it that's lived there for so long, you can definitely get to the spots that, you know, like aren't a tourist trap. Absolutely. And yeah. And so now I'd like to pivot a little bit to talk about your career. Um, and so you're currently the community volunteer ambassador for the National Park Service at Fire Island National Seashore, but that hasn't always been your role. So where did your path take you after college? So my path was pretty interesting because I actually never planned to go into like environmental education or interpretation per se. But when I finished college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I ended up moving back to Ventura. Um, I, I stayed at home for a while. I was doing random jobs. I was being a kayak instructor. I was a hostess at a restaurant. And eventually I got a position being a camp instructor for a science camp at the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History. Um, while I was there, I really enjoyed it. And I actually enjoyed talking to children about, you know, something that they would maybe enjoy in the future studying themselves. So it really inspired me to continue doing um, environmental education. Um, When I moved to New York, it's because I was actually offered an internship with the Student Conservation Association. Um, And with them, I was working for Fish and Wildlife here on Long Island. I was doing a lot of environmental education, a lot of outreach, a lot of community events, um, and a lot of like visitor hikes throughout the refuge that I worked at. Um, And while I was there, I met a lot of awesome people, a lot of people who got me to where I am today, actually, because they were able to connect me with Fire Island National Seashore, which is pretty close to the refuge that I was working at. Um, And with that, I was able to interview with the Environmental Education and Interpretation Division here. And that's how I found out about the Community Volunteer Ambassador Internship with Conservation Legacy. Um, And I've always felt like I was pretty good at event coordination in some weird way. When I was in high school, I was also in student body. So I really enjoyed coordinating things. Um, So when I found out about this position, I jumped at it because it was a mixture of environmental education and event coordination. And it was something that I could definitely learn from along the way. So that's how I got to where I am now. 
Yeah, and I, I think one of my favorite things about this show is hearing the path that people take to get to where they are now. Um, because I was in a similar boat as you, where when I graduated from college, from my undergrad, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I got my degree in communication and journalism because I figured that everybody, no matter what I settled on and decided that my passion was in, was you know, everybody needs a strong communicator. And so I figured I could apply that to whatever I chose to do. Um, but I think it's so fascinating to hear, you know, the path that everyone takes because you realize that, you know, you don't need to have it all figured out. Um, I mean, it would be pretty amazing if anyone ever really has it all figured out. But we have a lot of young professionals that listen to this show. And um, I really like to drive that message home that, you know, as long as you keep moving forward and growing and learning, it's all going to be okay and it'll work out. Um, because, you know, we all we all just don't really know what we're doing or it's okay to not know what you're doing yeah. once you graduate from college. Yeah. Yeah. And I had to learn that as soon as I left uh, college and I came home, my mom was actually like really, really nice about everything. She wasn't one of those parents who was pressuring me to immediately find a, a well-paying career. She understood the struggle. And, you know, I've been learning as I'm going and I'm in a field now that I didn't really think that I would be in. And I'm really grateful to be working for a federal agency now. It's taught me a lot about what I want and what I don't want. And, you know, there's still room to grow. I'm still pretty young. So I'm just going to take it day by day. I think that's a great mindset to have with it. And so now having worked for both Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Park Service, um, and I'm asking this because I also worked for Fish and Wildlife Service um, oh, awesome. for a time early in my career at Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge in Virginia. Um and I'm wondering if you could just share with listeners a little bit about some of the similarities and differences between the two. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Fish and Wildlife and the National Park Service have two different types of missions. They are both agencies that work to really conserve wildlife, um, make it, you know, make it so that the wildlife can be seen from the public. But the National Park Service's mission is a lot more visitor services based. And when I say that, I mean that they are allowing visitors to come. They're more based on like giving programs. Like I'm sure anybody who's been to a national park, they see rangers walking around trying to recruit people to come on their tours, trying to talk to people about what's going on. And they let them become very involved with the park. Fish and wildlife are different because they work on like a refuge based system. And with the refuges, the like the basis of a refuge is to preserve it and sometimes they don't want anybody being involved so the refuge system actually has way more refuges than the national park service where the national park service has about 412 park units the um fish and wildlife service has i want to say like a thousand wildlife refuges and majority of them are actually closed to the public so they're not involving the public. They want this more to be like conserving wildlife, keep it protected, and try to rehabilitate um, species that are either threatened or endangered currently. Um, some other differences with the two agencies is that when I was at Fish and Wildlife, it was way, way, way smaller like staff base. Here at the National Park Service, we have a lot more staff here because we do staff we need more rangers and interpreters um there's more facilities here so there's a lot more maintenance crew and it's just like a bigger family here 
Um, fish and wildlife are definitely going to hire more like biological technicians, more people bio-based and then national park service will hire that as well, but they will also be hiring for other divisions such as interpretation. Yeah. And I, I'm reminded of my time at Chincoteague because, um, you know, and for people that haven't been to Chincoteague national wildlife refuge, there's actually a stretch of beach there that is managed by the park service. And then, um, if you were to actually go up into the Maryland side of the island, there's a whole section of the, you know, it's a park that's managed by the Park Service. But most of Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge is managed by Fish and Wildlife Service. So it was sort of this interesting teamwork between the two branches. Um, and you would find that at like certain times of year when, uh, you know, we'd get a heavy rain or something and all of the mosquitoes would hatch and there would be a ridiculous amount of bugs. Whereas, you know, on neighboring barrier islands, the state of Virginia and the the cities and municipalities would spray for mosquitoes. We would get a lot of the visitors to the beach complaining about all of the bugs there. And we would constantly have to be reminding them that it's within our mission with Fish and Wildlife Service to protect all wildlife. And that includes the mosquitoes as totally annoying and infuriating as they may be. <laughs> yeah, we have the same issue here at Fire Island. Um, I, you know, even where I live, I currently like live on the island and the mosquitoes are really starting to pick up right now. And I, I question it every day. I'm just like, why aren't we spraying? And then I have to remind myself like, oh yeah, I work for an agency where we're protecting wildlife. But it makes sense. Um, and at Chicoteague, is the barrier island neighboring it, is it Assateague? So it's actually, um, the Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge is, Ash, is on Assateague Island and then also encompasses a series of other smaller barrier islands. And the reason they awesome. named it Chincoteague is because back when it became a wildlife refuge, it was it had to be named after the closest uh, post office. And so that post, yeah, it's so random. And so the post office was located on Chincoteague Island, which is right next to um, Assateague Island. And that it's sort okay, of like sandwich. Yeah, it's like sandwich right between Assateague Island and Wallops Island, where there's a NASA facility mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard a lot about this area. I definitely want to get down there and check it out. It is so beautiful. And, you know, if you like wild horses, they do the classic. Yes. I feel like that's probably the biggest draw is all the the Chincoteague ponies that they have there. And they do the pony swim every year where they swim the horses oh, across the amazing. channel. Yeah, it was a pretty amazing experience. And we got to live right on the refuge. So I definitely felt really spoiled um, to have that mm-hmm. opportunity um, and so I know that many of our listeners have probably been to Fire Island, but a number, uh, including myself, have not been there. So I'm curious to learn more. Will you describe what it is like on Fire Island and what it is like on the National Seashore? Okay. So Fire Island is like a really unique place ecologically, historically, and geographically. Um, so it's a barrier island off the coast of New York and coming from the West coast, to be completely honest, like I never thought of New York city or of like New York other than New York city. And I never thought of like New York being coastal. Um, but going to long Island, you'll realize that there is a really, really long Island where there is a lot of beaches and it's beautiful. Um, and right off the South shore of long Island is fire Island. 
Um, Fire Island is 32 miles long, and the National Seashore actually encompasses 26 of them. Um, the island acts as like a really good storm barrier for Long Island. So when there's, you know, hurricanes or tropical storms, it will hit Fire Island first and break up the storm before it eventually reaches Long Island. So it's really, really important for um, the communities that live on the coastal part of New York. Um, Long Island and Fire Island are very similar, but Fire Island's different because of the dunes that it has. There are main ecosystems on Fire Island and, um, we have the dune systems, we have salt marshes, but we also have something that's very unique, and it's like a globally rare holly maritime forest. Um, on Fire Island, we have one, and we call it the sunken forest because it appears to be sunken between two dunes, and it's only one of two in the entire world. So the second one is actually in Sandy Hook, New Jersey, which isn't too far, but yeah, there's only two of them in the world, and we get a lot of visitors because of that fact alone. Um, some other awesome parts about Fire Island is the fact that there are 17 communities that actually live on the national seashore, which is pretty rare if you think about like national park units in itself. Um, these communities had lived on, Long, on Fire Island far before it ever became part of the National Park Service. So these families have been here for generations. Um, their children still live here and they come back year after year. And some of them are actually year-long residents. Um, so they live there, but it's kind of difficult for them to live there because of the simple fact that you can't drive at all on Fire Island. The only people that have access to driving on the island would be like the federal government or contract workers within them. Um, and because of that, we have other ways to get around on the island. We have ferry services that lead that leave from multiple sites throughout Long Island and they go across the Great South Bay. Um, and the Great South Bay is just this giant bay that you know, people fish in, there's a lot of recreation, but basically there's a ferry that will go across the whole bay. And sometimes it could take up to like 45 minutes to cross the bay. Basically you get to Fire Island and it's just like this giant playground for people, for children, for adults, um, for elderly to vacation, to relax. And it's really nice because people from the city flock here in the summer to escape the hustle and bustle and to you know, the concrete jungle when it's super hot in the city. Like this past week, it was blistering hot and we had so many people come from New York City to visit because they needed to escape to the beach. Um, and while you're on the island, you can also get around using a water taxi, which is awesome. It's a bit pricey, but, you know, if you want to go from one end of the, of the island to the other end, you can just hop on the water taxi and it'll drive you and you could call it up and it can come pick you up whenever you want. So there's a lot to offer here. Um, it's great for recreation. It's great just to chill with your family and relax on the beach. We have some trails you can visit. And like I said, there are rangers walking around if you have any questions. So people are really invested in Fire Island. And a lot of the community members that have been here for generations, they know more about it than the rangers do. So they're, they're chock full of knowledge too. It sounds like a really special place. And I actually just realized as you were talking that I've actually been to the other Holly Forest because my for my day job through the American Literal Society, our office is on Sandy Hook. Um, and so, yeah, so now I definitely need to visit Fire Island so that I can check both of them off on my list. Um, but that is uh, a really, it just sounds so amazing there. And I really love like visiting Sandy Hook. And, you know, eventually when I, I get out to Fire Island, I think it is so amazing to see 
how close you can be to New York City. And, you know, especially from my experience with Sandy Hook, you can see the skyline of New York City and across the bay. Um, But to feel like you're so removed and so remote, I think, is just such a unique experience to have that close to this huge urban area. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And on clear days, if you come to Fire Island, on our western side, we have the Fire Island Lighthouse. And it's um, it's pretty tall. And it was made so that it could guide ships into New York Harbor. But when you go to the very top of the lighthouse, it's 182 steps, I believe. Um, and you're, you know, it's a clear day. If you look towards the west, you can actually see the New York City skyline as well. And so what does your current position entail at the seashore? So a community volunteer ambassador, it's kind of a mouthful, and I get this question all the time. But basically, I am split in between doing interpretation and education. So that means, you know, like educating the public, doing programs, leading tours, um, doing presentations, and doing like community outreach events, um, tabling at different fairs and, you know, like vendor villages and whatnot. But the second half is also volunteer recruitment and coordination. Um, So being a community volunteer ambassador, our main goal is to better the volunteer program at the park that we're currently at and to recruit people from underrepresented and underserved communities. So my goal currently is to be reaching out to communities on Long Island that you know, like they're farther away from the island or they never thought that they could get here because they don't understand the ferry service. Um, I'm targeting a lot of minorities, um, veterans, you know, a lot of different groups of people on Long Island that haven't had the chance to come here to Fire Island yet. And I'm trying to get them involved with service projects, with um, other volunteer opportunities, such as leading their own tours, um, helping with our research management division, or even helping with maintenance and backlog maintenance throughout the parks, which is a huge problem currently. Um, So yeah, basically I do a lot of volunteer coordination and recruitment, but focusing on underrepresented communities. I think that that's really important work that you're doing because one of the you know, most important and biggest ways to get people to really care about climate change and taking care of their communities and in the environment is giving them experiences and making sure that people have an opportunity to get outside and and experience, you know, the the beauty that's right there around them. Um, and uh, and I I experience that even here in Boston with you know we're right on the water here. And there are so many people that haven't been able to get out and experience Massachusetts' beautiful coastline because you're starting to see a lot of these like private businesses and corporations and companies coming in um, and building right along the water and trying to close off that public access. But something I'm getting off on a tangent here, but like something that I think is really fascinating about Boston, at least, is that it is every person's right that lives in this city to be able to access the shoreline along the harbor. So there are a lot of legal battles going on up here right now um, with these, you know, larger corporations that are coming in and trying to privatize that that harbor um, walk that we have right on the water. Um, so I, I think that it's just a really important thing that you're doing is trying to get people out um, enjoying our, our protected lands and our waters. Um, and then there's, you know, there's also the 
So we have like the people and experiential side of the park. Um, But then another great thing about these protected lands and waters is the wildlife that lives there. So what can visitors expect to see in terms of wildlife when visiting Fire Island National Seashore? So you will see a variety of animals, but the main one that you're most likely to see would definitely be a white-tailed deer. And that's simply because Long Island and Fire Island are overpopulated with white-tailed deer. Um, They're (laughs) everywhere. Um, It's to the point where, you know, they'll just come up to you and expect to be fed, which is a whole other problem with the park. But besides that, you'll see red fox. Um, You'll see a variety of migratory shorebirds, including the piping plover, which is like something that we're very big on doing conservation work with. Um, That also includes least terns, um, American oyster catchers, and other migratory shorebirds. You'll also see osprey, the occasional bald eagle. Um, Then we also have box turtles, snapping turtles, And then as far as marine life go, we have horseshoe crabs, which is a huge part of conservation work that we do at the park as well. Um, And then, like I said, we have the Great South Bay to the north of us. And then the south of us is the Atlantic Ocean. And the Great South Bay is unique because it's actually a nursery for sand tiger sharks. So there's often sightings of sand tiger sharks on either side of the island. Um, There's also thresher sharks, which are pretty... uh, you know, they're pretty common in the bay. And then we have a variety of different fish. We have puffer fish, toad fish, you know, like tons of different bait fish. Um, and we actually also have a lot of American eel, which is awesome because, you know, they do their, they migrate from the Sargasso Sea and they always come, weirdly enough, to like this region of New York. So we get a lot of like, um, teeny American eels and giant large American eels. So we're constantly finding a variety of marine life here. And hearing your comment about the white-tailed deer um, and how comfortable they are with human interaction, is there anything that you would like listeners to know about being mindful and responsible with their wildlife viewing? Yes. So rule number one of any wildlife viewing experience is you should never feed them. And I feel like that is common sense, but a lot of people don't know that. And Um, coming home. So I live on the West side of the Island and I actually can drive to my house, but when I'm driving down the street, I see so many visitors and tourists who are visiting the Island who are just reaching out of their car, feeding them trail mix or just leaving it on the floor. And it's just not good for the animal. First of all, they can't really digest it. Second of all, it's teaching them, you know, like to associate humans with food, which has led them to, you know, becoming roadkill. Um, so we actually have manage on Fire Island where you're when the portion that you can actually drive on and there's signs and it says how many deer were killed last year by cars and how not you shouldn't feed the wildlife because they're more than likely going to become roadkill if you continue to do so. And is there a hunting program at the seashore as well to help manage that population or is it more um, you know along that mindset we were talking about earlier with how fish and wildlife approaches a lot of it. I mean, Fish and Wildlife Service does hunting yeah. programs on refuges too, but. Yeah. So because of the massive overpopulation issue on Long Island and Fire Island, there actually are um, deer culling events on both. And we actually started to do our deer management plan quite recently. And it was controversial. Um, 
We started doing it in February, and that's when we announced to the public that there was going to be culling of the deer. Um, and the basis for that is simply because the deer have now started to affect other ecosystems on Fire Island, and most importantly, the sunken forest. And like I had said earlier, it's only one of two in the entire world. So the fact that the deer are grazing on this um, part of the forest, they've kind of wiped out the total understory of the sunken forest. And that's a really big issue because if, you know, if we lose this forest, then they only have the one in Sandy Hook and who knows what could happen there. Mm -hmm. So because of that, we really want to conserve this ecosystem and this, you know, very unique habitat. So we've decided to do deer management on the island and the federal government has hired sharpshooters within um, federal jurisdiction to go ahead and carry that out. And it's going to be, I think, a three-year plan. And um, it's not going to be like they're continuously doing it. It's going to be only for like a certain week of each year. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I also feel like the the island is, now that I'm thinking about management and, uh, you know, all of the different challenges that the the seashore and the island may face, I feel like Fire Island is pretty well positioned to be at the forefront of some serious threats from sea level rise and climate change. I mean, even just looking at a map, it's, you know, it's this long, very thin island. And I'm I'm wondering if you could speak to some of the climate impacts that you're seeing on the seashore and what impacts you might expect to see in the coming years. Yeah, so Fire Island definitely definitely experiences the worst of storm impact. Like I had said, like Bear Island serves for that purpose, but you know, with the change in climate that we are currently happening, um, storm occurrence is a lot more common on the eastern seaboard. And sea level rise is a huge factor on the well-being of both of these islands, um, more specifically Fire Island. Um, and the island, you know, it often floods during a severe storm or even a minor storm nowadays. And we're seeing the water table actually rise within the groundwater of Fire Island. So that's a whole other issue. Basically, they're anticipating, you know, in years from now that the island will pretty much just sink. Um, and, it, you know, it affects a lot of the communities here on the island. Like I said, there's 17. So a lot of them, a lot of people have said, like, if you buy property on Fire Island, like, you're just setting yourself up for failure because it's gonna, it's not going to work out. Um, yeah, it floods pretty rapidly and it's also affecting our salt marsh habitats as well. Um, we're losing salt marsh habitat more and more every year. And, you know, that's a vital habitat for like nursing fish as well as shorebirds and, you know, like waterfowl. So it's a huge issue that we're trying to focus on right now. Um, and, you know, so now speaking about climate change and and maybe maybe some of the listeners have a little bit more of a sense of urgency to go visit the island, um, you know, yes. before the before <laughs> yeah. things are, And I mean, that's sort of the dynamic of a barrier island anyway, is that they're always moving and changing and shifting. Um, but yes, everybody go visit now. But I also find, you know, that working in the world of conservation and, and dealing with climate change, it can be really overwhelming at times to think about. So I'm wondering, what is it that keeps you motivated and inspired and interested in your work? Well, yeah, like you said, it's really easy to get discouraged and, you know, think that the world is ending and that there's no point to anything. But I'm always motivated to keep on going and continue, you know, this field because I constantly hear in the news or read or I'll get sent 
links from some of my friends about all this great work that's being done by other nonprofits, other national park sites and refuges. Um, and especially when I hear about younger generations getting involved with environmental conservation and advocacy. Um, I think it's great that younger people are realizing that this is something that shouldn't be ignored and it's not something that can just go away and it's, there's no use in denying it. Um, and I feel like I'm just constantly interested in environmental conservation because I don't have interest in anything else, to be honest. <laughs> I can't see myself doing anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I lean on that too with looking at people that are, are, doing positive things and making positive change within their own communities or regions or, you know, countries or across the globe. Um, I mean, to be completely honest, that's the whole purpose of this show is to sort of combat some of that negativity and, um, you know, feeling like the problem is too big to solve by taking a moment to talk to people that are doing really great work and hearing about how you got there and what you're doing and how you're doing it in hopes that we can inspire people and demonstrate, you know, Hey, you know, yes, maybe it feels a little bit overwhelming, but the thing that you can do is focus on yourself and your community first. You know, you don't need to solve everything, but if we're all just taking one step or doing something positive, it really will have real life impacts um, and help. Yeah, exactly. And I I have some friends that are currently, you know, in the realm of conservation biology. And they oftentimes feel like they're, you know, their work is impactful. They're not doing enough to do things. But the fact that you're in this field in itself is enough. And I think that people who are listening definitely need to hear that because just the little things, like you had said, make a big difference. And along with that is um, educating others. And that's a big reason why I still continue to work in education and interpretation because just being able to educate somebody on something that they had no knowledge prior to is like so gratifying for me, you know, to make them understand how important something is or like when my visitors ask me, why are you killing the deer? You know, like to make them understand that, you know, ecological shift and imbalance is something that's serious. And, you know, sometimes they'll leave and they'll have new knowledge and that's all that really matters. Educating the public is the first step, I think. I agree. And I think that, I, you know, I get so much joy out of seeing even the tiniest behavior changes, um, more so like within my own circles of like friends and family members that might not be as um, conservation minded, um, just over time through having exposure to me and my work and, you know, the things that I know, just try, you know, if someone chooses to use a reusable cup or recycle something, you know, that makes me, I feel like, like a proud mom in those moments. <laughs> Exactly. Like my mom, she was, she was the type of mom to have like a bottle, like a case of plastic bottled water in her car at all times. And I was pushing for her to stop doing that for a long time. And she's finally nixed it completely. I don't ever see plastic in her plastic bottled water in the house anymore. And I'm just like, yes, thank you. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And you know, behavior change is definitely a marathon. It's not a sprint. So sometimes you definitely have to keep at it. Um, And what are some ways that listeners can either volunteer at the seashore or engage with you and your work? Um, yeah. So I was just going to say become a national park service volunteer or fish and wildlife volunteer. Yeah. But uh, yeah, if you were to volunteer, it's very easy, you know, just 
there's a website called volunteer.gov. If you go to volunteer.gov, you can look at a national database for places to volunteer all over at parks, um, at refuges, wherever you like. And there's always open spots. Like currently at Fire Island, we are looking for people to help out in interpretation and talk to the public like I do. We're also looking for people who want to be native plant gardeners because um, currently working on formulating a native plant garden and also a pollinator garden. So we're looking for people to help with that. Um, there's also opportunities at other parks for you to do work with resource management. So if you want to get some field experience and learn from biologists about what's going on at your local national park, you can definitely try to reach out and they might have you help, you know, you can help with like bird monitoring or, you know, just simple trash pickup and stuff like that. Um, so there's a plethora of different opportunities at all of our parks um, and not just, you know, national parks, but also like state parks and county parks. There's always opportunities. Yeah. And I think, you know, from my own experience with Shingateague National Wildlife Refuge, some of our volunteers were, they're just so valuable to have um, in terms of the work that they do and the help that they provide. Um, because, you know, especially Fish and Wildlife Service, that's often one of the first agencies to get its budget slashed. Um, if things, if there are budget cuts and capacity is a very real issue in, um, you know, both Park Service and Fish and Wildlife Service. So, um, if you're looking to get into conservation work, volunteering for either Fish and Wildlife or National Park Service um, will not only be a rewarding experience for you, but I promise that it will be so helpful to the folks that work at either the refuge or the national park. Yes, absolutely. And not even volunteering. I mean, that is the first place I would start. You know, it's definitely impactful. But um, when I finished college, like the way that I got into here is technically through interning through conservation cores. Like I had said, Student Conservation Association or Conservation Legacy, they have paid internships where you can learn from biologists and park rangers in the field um, and you get valuable work experience. And you know what? The Those cores are the ones who are paying you. It's technically not coming out of the pocket of the federal government. So when I worked at this past wildlife refuge here on Long Island, there were more conservation corps interns than there were staff. And that just goes to show like how the funding is not there and they have to figure out how to do, you know, go around that. And the fact that like AmeriCorps and Conservation Legacy and these other cores have, you know, become more important and more prevalent in society. It's really helpful for these federal agencies. Absolutely. And, um, you know, before we wrap up, I would like to ask you a series of a few broader questions um, that I like to ask all of my guests um, because I just find it so fascinating to hear um, everyone's insights and, and how they respond to these. Um, so let's start with what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we are faced with? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think I'm biased when I say these things because I am a marine biologist, but I'm definitely going to say it has to do with the ocean. Um, for one, ocean acidification is something that's very, it's a huge challenge and it should be looked at more, you know, it's leading to the destruction of earth's coral reefs and without, you know, this tiny yet vital ecosystem, you know, the earth can't provide enough seafood, um, to feed earth's populations. And I feel like that's 
one of those things where people are like, out of sight, out of mind. I don't live next to a coral reef. It doesn't affect me, but it really does. Um, and along with those lines goes, you know, overfishing as well. Um, just overfishing and depleting earth stocks of fish. Um, that feeds a lot of earth's population and majority of our population lives on the coast and it gives people, so the fact that overfishing is occurring and we're depleting our stocks um, and we're losing these ecosystems that also hold these species, it's, it's just not, not a good thing for either parties. Um, yeah, so I would say ocean acidification and overfishing. Yeah, and I, I think that is one of the biggest challenges that we face with ocean conservation work is, um, you know, we're a terrestrial species. So we live on land and we see it and we get the impact. It's so difficult sometimes to make that connection to folks about what's happening on, around, and, you know, in the ocean, simply even just the fact that we don't see it every day. There are so many people that don't even connect with the ocean every day. Um, so I think that that's, that's another huge challenge um, and then, you know, on the flip side of that, I would love to know what are you hopeful for moving forward? Um, I think this goes along with the lines of me saying that the younger generations have become more involved with environmental advocacy. I'm really hopeful for, you know, for Washington to realize that this is something that's important and it's not something that can be ignored or denied, which just boggles my mind, but I'm just hopeful for future generations to really pick up on this environmental movement and for, you know, all of planet earth to be an environmental steward for something that's giving us life. Um, I'm really hopeful for future generations. Yeah. And I love that response. I feel like in recent years, I've, I've just gotten so much energy from the younger folks that are realizing the power that they have in going in and being these really powerful messengers to their representatives and members of Congress and other decision makers about, you know, it's not only the decision makers future, but it's like really, especially for the youth, it's like their lives and their livelihoods and their families and their opportunity moving forward. And I think that they're perfectly positioned to be very powerful when talking about climate impacts. And I just hope that they keep that momentum moving forward. Yeah. And I think that that's something that's relatively new. I feel like in our parents' generations, you know, children were taught to sit down and respect your elders and, you know, don't raise your voice and you don't have an opinion. But with things that have occurred in society lately, I just feel like, you know, the youth, they understand that their voices are important and people are going to listen to them because, you know, if a child, if a child is standing up and telling you that something's wrong, then you know that something's wrong. Yeah, exactly. And and even going back to, you know, I'm I'm 29 and even when I was in high school, I don't think I felt that sense of empowerment and really wished that I had um felt like I could have some control over going in and talking to my decision makers about climate, you know? I think that maybe would have um lit this spark inside of me a little bit earlier. And, you know, not that I have any regrets, but I think it gets back to what you're saying about just a generational thing and the mindset that we had of when I was in high school, I was like, well, you know, I'm just a high school student and what am I going to do? <laughs> um, and 
So I'd like to wrap up on a two-part question um, because we have a lot of, like I said earlier, young professionals that listen to the show. And we also have, you know, lifelong learners that also listen. What is the best advice that you've ever been given? Oh, that's such a tough question. Um, probably from my parents and just the fact that they have been so supportive of thing that I've done and they've supported me in every place that I've lived, but they've always told me at a young age that, you know, do what makes your heart happy and do something you're like, you're going to, you know, not only you're going to benefit from, but you're going to leave an impact on the world. And I think that's something that I'll like always hold with me. I'm, you know, there's some people in life who don't have those opportunities. Like, you know, they're, they're forced to do something from the get go, or that's just the route that they've, you know, they've chosen. But I've been lucky enough to be able to choose that for myself and know that the work that I'm doing is impactful and it's going to help somebody in the long run. Um, and I'm so grateful for my parents to have always instilled that thought with me. And I, that's something that I would love to tell, you know, listeners as well. If you have the opportunity to, and you have the freedom to do so, go ahead and do something that, you know, makes your heart happy, but also, you know, like helps something bigger than just yourself. Yeah. Well, you touched on the second part of that question, but you can, I mean, you can elaborate on it too, if you'd like, but I was going to say as our, you know, our, our resident expert on this show with Fire Island and your amazing career. Um, and I'm so excited to see where you where you keep going with this. Um, what advice do you have for our listeners? Um, you know, go after your dreams. And if you have a passion and you have an interest, um, like I did with marine biology, you know, and that seems far-fetched, it's really not. You know, there's so many um, outlets for you to get information about these things and so many opportunities in the world for you to figure this out. Um, advice for young listeners is to definitely like pursue these, these ideas that you have and don't ever think for one day that it's, you know, not attainable because it definitely is. That's great advice. Yes, definitely <laughs> trust your instincts and listen to your gut and follow yes. those passions. Yes. Um, and use wait, less I plastic. Had... <laughs> yes. Yes. Definitely use less, less plastic. Um, if nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> I had a great time chatting with you today and I Me really too. appreciate all of the amazing work that you and your colleagues are doing and you taking the time to share your story with me and our listeners today. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I also would like to thank the listeners. If you like this show and want to hear more, subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. Rates and reviews are always appreciated. And you can find us on Facebook at the American Shoreline Podcast Network and on Twitter at Coastal News 365. You can find me personally on Twitter. It's at Yenna Benna. That is Y-E-N-N-A-B-E-N-N-A. And on Instagram, it's the same thing, but Yenna has three N's in it. Find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines. Mm -hmm.